box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Welcome to Filmstrip's Hellraiser series. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some. Angels to others. Featuring Nick. Come to daddy. And Jay. This is it. The old homestead. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and details of the Hellraiser films. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Nick. And this is our review of Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, starring Doug Bradley, Terry Farrell, Paula Marshall, Kevin Bernhardt, and Ashley Lawrence. Directed by Anthony Hickox. Released in 1992 in a budget of seven to nine million, depending on who you ask, grossed over 12 million in its box office run. And Nick, we talked about the last ones as they were kind of gothic horror films, such like that, maybe straight, you know, sort of supernatural. The last time, this one is a real departure from all of that. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, you can tell right away this movie is a lot slicker in the way it looks. It's much more uh, Hollywood sheen. When you just look at like just like the uh, cinematography, just even the film style, everything is just much more polished. And I would say that's not a good thing <laughs> for this type of film. Well, you know, you talk about that, and we when we get into the horror franchises and stuff, at some point they do hit that moment where they are studio properties, and this is still independent stuff at this point. But they, you know, the rights were getting shifted around a lot at this point and stuff. So I mean, there was. A lot of money changing hands, but these were making money, and so because they are products, they had to look a certain way. And I agree with you; this one looks different than the last ones, even. But they still try to maintain some of that same aura, I would think. A little bit. Uh, to me, just the gloss seemed to be really distracting. And as you say, you know, like yeah, every horror franchise seems to kind of get to this point, and. I think we can all say, you know, a lot of these franchises when they would start to become not very good. <laughs> well, yeah, there always is that moment. When are they going to jump the shark completely, right? You know, and we'll talk about whether or not this one does at this point. But I think before we get any further into Hell on Earth here, Nick, you got to tell us what happens in this film. All right, I will try because this, this is quite a strange story here. So you have to <laughs> yeah. bear with me. A sleazy nightclub owner, J.P. Monroe, purchases a strange, disturbing sculpture, which he soon discovers contains a mysterious, ornate puzzle box. The, this box is a legendary object that promises the secrets of ultimate pain and pleasure, but it is in fact a gateway to hell. Soon the box's new owner has unleashed the evil Pinhead, a member of the race of supernatural beings known as the Cenobites. Pinhead proceeds to murder numerous clubgoers in an attempt to gain power and fully free himself into Earth's realm. He faces an unexpected opposition in the form of a television reporter named Joey, who is investigating uh, the mysterious club murders. When she discovers the truth behind the puzzle box, she realizes that only she can stop the carnage. However, she must not only defeat Pinhead, but his fellow Cenobites created from the people at the club. Joey is contacted by the spirit of Elliot Spencer, who tells her that Pinhead is a separate entity than the one the one encountered by Christie previously. Without Spencer's humanity to act as a balancing influence, this pinhead is completely evil and has no sense of order. Rather than abide 
by the laws of the Cenobite realm, he will indiscriminately wreak havoc on Earth for his own pleasure unless he is stopped. In order to defeat him, Joey must reunite Spencer's spirit with Pinhead, fusing them back into a single entity. Yes, you did yes. hear that correctly. Indeed. Um, at the climax of the film, Pinhead and Joey confront each other in a boiler room, Freddy. <laughs> the Pinhead demon tells Joey to give him the box. She then breaks away and begins to free. Pinhead resurrects the corpses of his victims into Cenobites, but they are quickly sent to hell. Joey finds herself in a heaven-like realm and comes face-to-face -face with an apparition who appears to be her dead father. The apparition tells Joey to give him the laminate configuration a.k.a. the puzzle bot, and it is revealed to be Pinhead in disguise. Pinhead catches her in machinery and prepares to turn her into a Cenobite, but is confronted by Spencer's spirit who forcibly fuses him into Pinhead. Joey breaks free and stabs Pinhead, stabbing him back to hell. With Pinhead's humanity restored, Joey buries the puzzle box in cement. The final scene of the film shows a new building being built where Joey buried the box. The interior design of the building being the same as the Lament configuration. Da, da, da. There it is. Well, you, that's not even half of it, man. Like, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in this movie. But first things first, right out of the gate. If the first movie was about Frank and Julia, and the second movie was about Kirstie and this mute girl at the the uh, insane asylum this is definitely pinhead's movie can we just say that like you know joey and terry and jp and all these other people we meet they're really incidental it's all about pinhead here right yeah you know yeah it is totally pinhead's movie i mean you look at like any horror franchise with kind of like a name villain like freddy i mean it's probably like halfway through part three part four where he becomes kind of the the focal point and main character of the franchise. And same with Jason, I think probably by like part four, maybe like part six or whatever, he actually becomes kind of the uh, main character, almost kind of like an anti-hero in a way where it's like the crowd is cheering for them, even though he probably really shouldn't. I mean, right. But yeah, yeah I mean, you start to cheer on the killer to take off the, take out the, the evil people that you don't like, you know, and well, not even that. I think it's just mostly that they kind of spend more more time on the villain that it's like everybody else is so paper thin that you only can help but cheer against them. Right. Well, and and you've hit on it there, too, is you start telling the, the villain's story. And we've gotten little bits of it here and there. But now this is full on all about the pinhead. And really, it is, you know, Spencer is this the first time we see this whole idea of that, you know, it was a separate entity and that was his last bit of humanity and it's what kept him from being totally evil, which, you know, wasn't like Pinhead was a nice guy to begin with, but, you know, I, I guess they're going for that this time. But they do set up these really unlikable people, particularly this Monroe cat. J.P. Monroe, we got to talk about this dude, man. Like, uh, this movie was made in 1992. This guy, is he still stuck in 87? Because... If he's anywhere, that's where he is. I thought this was like one of the Dillon brothers. You know, whether it might be like Matt Dillon and the other, uh, is it Kevin Dillon, the guy from Entourage? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's definitely got that look. <laughs> he looks just like him. He looks yeah. just like him so much. But yeah, he's like something you'd probably see out of like um, well, the movie with Christian Bale, um, American, uh, American, American Psycho. Psycho, yeah. Yeah, just like this, like, yuppie, whatever. And my God, the club that he owns, what a weird place. I mean, <laughs> it is completely, like, they call it the boiler room. Right. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's total like an homage to like Freddy. And even at this time, Freddy is homaging Pinhead with, you know, he was adding chains with hooks and stuff as well. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a little whatever, you know, they call it the boiler room, obviously, because of Freddy and stuff like that. And it's like half like weird chained up nightclub. And then the other half is like a fancy restaurant. Yeah, no, Did you get that? I, that's what I didn't get. It's like there's a five star in the back. And then but in the front is this club with. I, you know, it's it's a part nightclub. Like uh, to me, it looked kind of like if we bastardized the set of the Bronze from Buffy and turned it into like a, you know, a, a rave club. That's what we would get here with the the boiler room. Very very weird, but not nearly as weird as J.P. Monroe's like pad that he his bachelor's pad that he lives in behind the club, right? Because all club owners just live in their club. They don't you know want to go home ever. Well, of course. I mean, but really, I mean, this is probably where this type of guy would probably even want to live. He wants to, you know, he's, he's a douchebag. Let's just say it right away. Well, I mean, I mean he's, you know, he's, he's picking up girls at the bar. So, and we find that, you know, for nefarious reasons as we get on into this. But the really when we meet him is the opening bit where he buys a piece of artwork that is the Pillar of Souls from the end of the last movie. So my question is, like, I guess we're just supposed to assume that somehow or another this wound up in the back alley art dealer's warehouse. Like we, we, you know, the last time we saw it, it rose up out of the old bed to kill that moving guy at the uh, asylum, right? Yeah, but I, I guess you know, I guess maybe it travels around trying to find, you know, sensing the most, you know, opportune place for it, you know, to wreak its havoc or whatever. So I guess really this guy would be it. I mean. And he doesn't strike me as like kind of an art collector, you know what I'm saying? He seems yeah. like he's probably a guy that's probably more into buying like black silk sheets for his room and more motor oil for his hair. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, or mirrors for his ceiling or something, you know, more of that kind of crap. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't like he had a lot of cool art hanging around, but it, I think we're supposed to be led to believe that like the, the puzzle box, which is part of the... I guess the stone of this thing or whatever, calls to him in some way, right? Like, is that what we're supposed to get? I think so. I think it's supposed to be like, yeah, this guy is the best chance I have for, you know, accomplishing my goal. And this would be, you know, Pinhead coming out on Earth. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing here is in the, the last film, you know, the Pinhead Cenobite Spencer or whatever was killed by that super Cenobite, you know, that temporarily made out of the doctor. Right. So we're to believe he's gone and all that's left is the evil that's now trapped in this pillar, right? And it's trying to get free. And what did you make of the way that, like, he activates it, you know? And that he then has to start feeding it, you know, people and skin and stuff like that. I mean, it's basically the same concept as the first two movies. I mean, with Julia feeding Frank and then, you know, Dr. Chenard or, you know, feeding Julia in part two. I mean, it's it's a play on that still. I mean, that's what they're doing. And I, I don't mind it. I think it's kind of vicious, you know, especially how it does all he rips the skin off and stuff. And then he almost kind of just consumes the whole body. Oh, no, yeah, that one chick, like, you know, he picks her up at the bar with the frozen rose and all that business. And he gets her back in the room and we get that gratuitous shot of him having sex with her. Which, by the way, he's like got a cigarette with an inch long ash hanging off of him while he's on top of this girl. I'm like, I think she would notice it when it started to fall on her. I don't, I don't know that he was that good, right? But then he pretty much tells her to get lost and she's standing too close to the thing and uh pinhead eats her is that kind of what happens 
Yeah, it's like the chains come out and rip off her skin pretty easily, too. I didn't know skin rips off that easy, but... Yeah, but now, I'm going to say yeah, this right now. That effect did look cool. Like, you can tell now, like, they're spending the money on the effects, because I thought that looked really good. Oh, it looks cool. It's just, like, the skin rips off, like, a you know, a layer of KFC skin off a fried <laughs> piece of fried chicken. I mean, it's just, like, right off the eat, you know? Yeah, it pulls, it pulls yeah. right off, and then it, it swallows the skinless Sandy, I think was her name, and into the... Does uh, she have a name? I didn't even know she even had a name. She had, I think she's I, named after the color of her hair, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, so some of the most, like, ridiculous acting, though, with her one, you know, and she's like, oh, my God, you used me for sex. It's like, really? <laughs> really? You, you, you really... You didn't really figure that out, you know. Well, I think she's supposed to, she's supposed to be the stereo the stereotypical dumb blonde, right? That's what she's supposed to be, and so I don't know though. I kind of like the idea that if we're gonna repeat the same mo every time, right? That we've got to have so many sacrifices to bring the thing forth, or for somebody to get their skin back, or whatever. I don't know. It was different this time to see that it was pinhead, pure pinhead, trying to be born from the. Uh, the pillar. I don't know. I thought that was cool at least. Yeah, it's different. I mean, we talked last time that how they were kind of maybe hoping that Julia would be kind of the next, you know, villain for Hellraiser 3 if they continued on. And they obviously, you know, kind of went back on that and decided to go with Pinhead, which I think was a smart decision because he is kind of the, the face of the series and the, you know, just because of the look of him and stuff like that. But well, part of the thing I was missing though was the fact that Pinhead was cool because I think he also had his like little entourage of you know, Cenobites behind him, you know, guys that were just as cool looking as him were. This one, he's just kind of by himself for a while. They're all dead. That's the thing we got to remember. Like, th- all those creatures had been destroyed. They were part of the pillar. But my, my question was, would they have had to come to life as well and suck up a bunch of people to be brought out or something like that? Like, I, you know, because he seems to be really keen on the idea of making new Cenobites. I mean, that's what he does, essentially. He turns JP into one. He turns the disc jockey into one, the videographer into one. We'll talk about them. But I don't know. That just seems to be what he's there to do because he's now loosed on Earth. He's not at the beckon of the puzzle box. Is that the way we're supposed to understand it? Yeah, I guess he's not being controlled by, you know, uh, Leviathan from, you know, part (laughs) two. And I I took it as he was kind of creating his army. Yeah, it's like he's he's going to be on Earth, you know, and stuff like that. But we'll we'll come back to Pinhead, though, because we got to talk about Joey, this reporter. Chick, you know, the, the movie, oh, of course, her name's Joey, too. I mean, how early 90s, <laughs> Joanne, summer school. Okay, what did you make of her and her like flashbacks to her dad dying in Nam? You know, like it's like she had first person point of view dreams about something that she probably was barely alive for. I don't even think she could be alive. He was in Vietnam. What year was Vietnam? You were probably alive for that, Jay. <laughs> Actually, I wasn't, but. You know, that ended in 75, so how old do you think Joey is here in 92? She's at least, what, 22, maybe? So maybe she was Yeah, I guess, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe she's five or something like that, but I don't know. You figured that'd be something, you know, if children that age, I mean, yeah, that's that's sad that you don't, you know, you lose a parent, but I think that'd be something she'd be pretty much over with at the age of 22, you know? Well, I don't know why she's, I don't know that she was even like dwelling on it. It's almost like it came to her in her dreams. And the way this movie plays, it's almost like the ghost of Elliot Spencer introduces that to her to get her to realize that there are realms beyond this existence. And so she can help or whatever, right? Like that's the way this movie wants us to believe. 
I guess. I don't know. I just took it as something that was going to turn it. Basically, it turns into a plot device in the end of the movie. Well, that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you're right. I'm just saying. I'm trying to understand her motivation because the thing is, she's like hanging out at the hospital when this girl and her boyfriend, who's got chains all over him, come rolling in, right? Yeah, when uh, yeah, Terry comes in and stuff. What, what did you make of her character? Because I thought her and Joey's relationship was a little, a little strange. Boy, I'm glad you <laughs> saw that too. I was like, man, I she's like, oh, this is great having girls to talk to and stuff. I was like, I think, uh, I think uh, Terry wants a little bit more out of Joey than just a, uh, you know, a couch to crash on for a night or two. <laughs> well, and I figured Joey wanted a little more too because like when she's looking for, her, she's like, I'm looking for a girl. Really pretty, and it's just like that was like always the first thing she said about well, her was that oh yeah she's no really I love attract. that he goes to the club is like I'm looking for a pretty girl and, and I'm waiting for the guy to go uh yeah <laughs> I mean really because yeah. they, they were surrounded with I don't know I just yeah looked, I'd be like yeah you me and everybody who comes here how can I help you, <laughs> you exactly know? yeah I mean that was so cheesy I mean she's she's the worst investigative reporter ever you know like she didn't even well I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even gonna call her Terry I'm just gonna call her Katy Perry because <laughs> that's what she looked like she looked like Katy Perry uh, I, I, I was, think you're downing Katy a little bit of that this Katy's way prettier than this chick so I mean I, she, had, she, she had the crazy eyes though man those crazy <laughs> crazy like eyes that both of them had and the, I don't know the brunette hair or whatever I don't know it's just well, what we find yeah. out about Terry is that she is one of JP's, you know, flames or whatever, on and off again as it may be, right? And so that you know, that's her connection to the club, and she ultimately winds up going back there too and stuff. I don't know. It was, it, I mean, she turns into a Cenobite at the end. Yeah, I took it as like she was kind of just like a club girl, yeah. you know, like that was like her hangout place. She got you know got to know the owner, and she just was kind of like a. You know, maybe one of his, you know, one night stands every once in a while. And she ended up, like, what, hooking up with another guy who ended up having the box. Yeah, let's talk about that. The guy the guy that the, the gets taken apart by the chains in the emergency room. Yeah, I, don't, I thought that scene was pretty effective. I mean, it was it was freaky, that's for sure. It was cool, but it was, you know, different again. There's stuff we haven't seen before. I mean, usually in the other movies when the box was whatever, I mean, Spinetta would come out and whoever was there was kind of, you know, screwed along with whoever opened it. Mm-hmm. It, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a cool scene. I mean, you well, can obviously tell the bigger budget here when the chains come out and just rip them all apart right there. Well, it sets up something that would that that, that changes the rules, and that's what I'm talking about. Because you're right, it's usually the thing that summons the Cenobites. That's what Pinhead said in the first film, right? Is that that's a box to summon us? But they're no longer summonable, if that's a word, because they're tied up in the Pillar of Souls. So it lets me know that that box has its own set of rules and power. Like it's almost like they're setting up the box for the boxes movie, you know, coming up or something. I don't know. I always I always took it that there was more Cenobites than just him. Mm. You know, that's 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 the impression I got. So. I didn't think they want to introduce any more, but they wanted to bring the box into it because that was the familiar object right away in the movie, just to let you know people kind of know that it's everything's kind of getting set in motion and exactly you know to bring something familiar back into it right away. Because at this point, I mean, we got characters that we have no idea who it is because we have no we got no returning cast. We do get a little cameo of Ashley Lawrence, you know, as Kirsty, but I mean that, that's nothing more than you know two minutes of just you know 
whatever. You know? No, no, no. I agree. We'll talk about that scene because I do, I do want to talk about that scene. But you're right. This is how you introduce a new cast, though. And I think this is the thing that I've always found interesting. And I know he had very little to do with this one. But Clive Barker has said he doesn't understand why people hate sequels. Like he thinks if you've got a big enough you know, idea, it can be applied in a lot of ways. So he's actually one of these guys that's cool that people have taken his stuff and done whatever with it. I'm also sure he enjoys the checks. So, you know, that that's part of it, too. But you know, I, I don't know. I like the idea that we're not going to follow that family anymore. I sort of, I, I was done with Kirstie, weren't you? I was through with her. Yeah, she served her point. I mean, you're going to keep on bringing her into it. It's just going to be kind of, you know, how is she going to get out of it this time? You know, what, what's funny to me is that they do bring her in as it. She's like a somebody feeds Joey information about the the puzzle box and these strange creatures and stuff through like archival footage taken from a therapy session or something it's just an old vhs thing but i realized later screen three totally ripped that off when they brought randy back you know on vhs just to have somebody explain what's happening in the plot because nobody else has any idea what's going on yeah i've seen this device used many times where someone's kind of brought back through like the the power of recording you know whether it's you know it's cd or dvd you know dvd or video cassette or something like that I mean, yeah, it was, again, it was just kind of like the puzzle box in the beginning, just kind of bringing a little bit of familiarity to, to, to the audience and, you know, trying trying to link everything as best as they can and tr- making this like kind of a true sequel instead of just like another number. I mean, kind of like the uh, Jason movies, you know? Yeah, I like the idea, though, that they're they're continuing the saga, but without having to tie into all the, the human characters. I mean, it, you said it at the beginning, they made this about Pinhead, right? This is going to be about him, so we've got to introduce another cast, which, you know, most of which is there for body cam. Right. But you've got to at least have a character or two to follow. And while I don't think Joey's that interesting, I'm at least going with most of it because I do think the actress is selling it pretty hard. I mean, she seems genuinely interested in what's going on. Yeah, she's kind of ditzy, though. I mean, I remember like <laughs> there's like a scene in the beginning of the movie where she's like, well, I just don't want to be known for, you know, or, or get promoted or get noticed before wearing a tight skirt. Right. And she's saying and she's wearing a tight skirt. I'm just like, <laughs> OK, yeah, I mean. The, the actress playing her themselves, uh, Terry, Terry Farrell or whatever yep. her name is. Yeah, I mean, she's not much levels above a soap opera actress. I mean, she's pretty much got one tone the entire time. <laughs> well, you know, but I don't disagree with you, but I do think it works still. That's the thing. Like, you can you can be pretty paper thin in a horror movie and still be believable and likable. Like, I don't like Terry in this movie, and I certainly don't like J.P., but that was the thing about Kirstie. She wasn't a deep character, but she was somebody you could at least latch onto. And I can go with this this woman. She's interesting. Eh, she's do- I mean, doable. <laughs> I think that's the wrong way to say it. But she's serviceable as a protagonist is what I'm trying to say. Because we have to have somebody that is new to this too, that's learning the rules along the way so that we can have someone that we think is going to survive all this, right? Like that's the point. If you know everybody's going to die, then it, it sort of defeats the whole purpose. I guess that's one of the inherent things with a sequel is, you know, do you have to keep on reintroducing the r- rules for maybe a new audience that's coming into this late? Or do you want to play it up to the people that already know the series? So when you bring, like, in a new character like this and you got to bring back all the rules, I mean, it's, you're retreading over a lot of old ground. Right. We kind of know a lot of the stuff that they keep on rebringing back up and stuff like that. And it's just, I think the, the most interesting part about this movie, though, is the fact that they can- kind of bringing the Elliot Spencer character, you know, showing, you know, who Pinhead was as a human, you know, before he was transformed by a Leviathan in hell. Let me ask you this, too. I think I understand Pinhead's game. 
it, does he just want to take over Earth and make hell Earth now? Is that what he's doing? I took it as he was just crazy violent. You know, he was, you know, almost like what the Joker said in The Dark Knight where, you know, he's just doing it just because he can. You know, there's there's no, no other explanation. He's evil, so he's going to no, do I, I get that because Spencer tells us that too. No, you're right. But my question is, why does the ghost of Elliot Spencer care? That's the thing I don't understand is why does he care what the evil that he used to cohabitate with does? Well, I took it at the end when they merged together that he wanted that power back. Is that it? That there was something within him, yeah, that like he was separated from this pinhead form and he was going to use, you know, Joey to basically get him back inside with him and stuff and, you know, combine because, you know, I think it was, you know, when he – he went into the land and you know the hell and stuff, and he got transformed into it. I think that's kind of what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, he was seeking he was seeking pleasure beyond everything he had known. I mean, he did tell us that, right? And so that that was a way to obtain that. But of course, then he was punished for all eternity for it. So, but you know what though? When you when you, when you look at someone who's like uh, Doug Bradley, mm-hmm. and you know he looks so much different without the makeup on i mean he he goes from you know pinhead who's you know pretty intimidating looking to elliot spencer who looks like you know probably some guy who would be working at an english pub or something you know serving you beers or something uh i just don't buy him as someone who would be looking for that yeah that's the problem i'm with you here like frank i bought as somebody that had had a pretty lecherous but I mean, he was a skeezy looking dude jp looks like the kind of guy that would go looking for something like this this Army captain from World War One era Great Britain. I just don't buy that as a that he's a closet sadomasochist, <laughs> right? And is yeah, that is that I, the point? I, I is that, that what either. they're trying to tell us? Is that it's the ones you don't think of that are the dangerous ones? Is that the because if that's it, that's pretty weak. I don't know. I figured it, they, they could have expanded on it a little bit more. Maybe like saying like you know he saw these horrors you know in the war yeah, tr- and stuff tr- like that. Trench warfare is like, notoriously bad. I mean you know. Yeah, and he becomes almost like kind of desensitized, to, you know, to not just violence, but to anything else, you know, anything else emotionally. So he just become kind of a stagnant person, and he was looking for something to the extreme because that, you know, anything that was in this realm didn't do anything for him anymore. That he was just kind of a apathetic soul, you know, just waiting out its time on Earth. But they don't really go into that. It's just kind of like he just kind of goes into it, just being like, oh yeah, you know, I was, you know, looking for, you know, immense pleasure and stuff. It's like. You don't strike me as that type of guy, man. You strike me as the type of guy that'd probably rather be reading War and Peace than sitting on a classic <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Know? But I do like his revelation to Joey and the fact that she just buys it and goes along with it and that, that you've got to reunite us together. You've got to get him to, to take the box. You can't just give it to him. You can't just throw it on him. you got to get him to take it in some way. And, of course, as it turns out, that that's Pinhead's plan anyway, which which I did find kind of confusing. I'm like, well, it seems like he wants it, so I don't think it's a problem. But I don't know. That seems sort of forced. That like you're gonna have to come up with some great way to get him to take the thing. I'm like, I think he's wanting you to bring it to him. And I'm I'm confused as to the rules of the box at this point. I really am. Like it's a means to summon us. Oh, it's much more. Oh, it's this you know avatar for the god of the hell dimension that they're from because that's what it was last time right i what is the deal with the box i don't know (laughs) i really don't know i always took it as just a way of summoning you know summoning these beings and even when these beings come i mean it just seems like they just kind of just destroy you i mean there's no like 
going back and forth between like pleasure and pain or something like that. It seems like to be all just pretty much. Yeah, I know. That's that's what I'm wondering. I'm like, I haven't seen one thing that these people have done that's remotely pleasurable, (laughs) like not even close. (laughs) And, and I, I don't, maybe they just didn't think about it like that, but it does bring up a point. It's like, well, I guess when you're that far down the road of S and M that, you know, there's, (laughs) <laughs> there's is only so much you're only a few steps away from hooks right tearing tearing i guess man I, I mean you see it all the time those people that have like you know big ass piercings in their back and they hold themselves up in the air with chains or something i don't know i guess whatever floats your boat there oh well, maybe that's kind of what it is all right that brings us to the climax though and i want to talk about this climax for a little bit when pinhead finally rises and he starts attacking the club I love how he uses the corpse of his his of his victims to turn them into cenobites, and one of them has a camera for an eye that I guess can shoot people with it, and the other one has like a CD player jammed in him that he's you know shooting out compact discs of death at people. Yeah, he became he became uh, aged as soon as they got done filming. You know, it was just like. <laughs> Yeah, you really dated yourself with the CDs. Do you have, have you seen a CD in a while? I haven't seen a CD in a while. Yeah, years. I mean, I, I tripped over some the other day cleaning out my car, and I was like, what are these? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with you. But, you know, at the time, this, I mean, CDs were new in 92, man. I mean, that was that was new technology. That was not... Uh... Well, you're going to be like, you know, you're going to pull a wedding singer on me right now, or it's like, look what I bought. I bought a DVD player. Yeah, exactly, for $9,000 or whatever, but... <laughs> I don't know. It, this is the part of the film where I realized that, you know, this is definitely a pinhead movie and they're trying to have some fun. And I've been waiting for them to get to this anyway. I've been wanting them to have some fun with this by George and they finally are. So I'm not going to begrudge. Yeah, to do it. I'm going to because it really, I mean, we'll just talk about the Cenobite designs. I really like the original four. I mean, right. you obviously got pinhead, but then you got chatterer, which is a really cool design. I know he's like one of the uh, fan favorites as far as, you know, just the chattering of his teeth and stuff like that. And then you got the female one, which let's just be honest. I mean, her throat basically resembles a freaking, you know, female genitalia <laughs> and stuff the way it's opened up. And then, then you got Butterball, which is, he's kind of a, you know, cool little fat guy. But <laughs> this kind of struck me as, you ever see that show on sci-fi called, you know, like Face Off, where there's like the makeup challenges? Yeah, yeah. This is what it kind of struck me as is like they just had a bunch of makeup guys and say just come up with something. Oh, I think you're exactly right. Take some stuff we have laying around and just come up with something cool. I mean, it doesn't have to make sense. Forget what you saw in the first two movies. Take this theme of clubs and technology and put them together. I think that was basically what they told them, and it doesn't work. I mean, they're they're embarrassing. Well, I mean, you got the guy with the camera, and it's like, what's he gonna do? Take pictures of you? And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, the camera's going to be an explosion. This is what the Cenobites were about. The Cenobites never had, like, powers. I mean, they could control chains and stuff, and they were grotesquely deformed, but mostly because of what was done to them. I mean, these guys are just like, they got a guy with, like, that JP has, like, pistons in his head. I don't know if that's some type of, like, sex metaphor, the way they're going back and forth and into his head. And then you got, like, the CD guy, and then... uh, I don't know who else. So. Well, I mean, you, you've nailed them. The camera guy, the CD guy, you've got uh, Terry gets turned into the, the new female Cenobite. I mean, that's how that goes down. 
And and she looks just like the old female Cenobite, so there's nothing except for she has no gore on her at all. She's just yeah. Well, she's got her like scalp pulled apart or something like that. Like it's it's but oh, it's very is. it's very light. No, you're you're not wrong. I had fun with it. I thought it was cheesy, but because it really leads to the scene that we've got to talk about. Probably if anybody's seen this before, the thing they remember is when Pinhead walks into the church and basically desecrates it. Right. Like it's all this. He takes all the religious iconography, particularly Catholic iconography, and turns it into Cenobite gore. You know, he he strikes the crucified pose. He gives himself the stigmata wounds. He makes the priest eat his body and says, the you know, those lines take eat. This is my body, you know, which is a, a sham of the uh Christ Supper, you know, the Last Supper and things like that. So, I mean, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, watching it now, I guess I'm just older and more jaded. I've seen too much stuff. But in 1992, this would have, I could see this just freaking people out, like left and right. Yeah, but even like, I guess maybe by today's standards, it's not very, you know, eh, you kind of see it every day on TV or something like that. And I don't know, I just see when he walks up to the altar and he just kind of like, I don't know. It wasn't very impressive what he does. He just kind of knocks stuff off the table like he's a little mad or something at it. I mean, I do like kind of like what they're going for there, where it's kind of like. But I wish they would have took it a step further. I wish it would have been like you know you had the priest telling him you know you know who do you think you are coming into God's house and him just kind of laughing like there you know God, you know I've seen everything you can see. There is no God. All there is is pain and you know pain and pleasure. And I am you know the whatever of that or something. I mean, I think they could have done a little bit. Can I tell you, I think they probably tried. There's like five or six versions of the script running around. They probably went for it. This is probably what they could get past. The MPAA in 1992 would have never, I mean, I'm surprised they let this go. Really? I mean, this is not the kind of thing that you just showed. I mean, you say it now. It's on television every week. Yeah, that's what I mean. We're in a, a you know time in life when this is, relatively tame compared to some other things that are out there. But uh, this, uh, this had to blow people's minds in, in its time. There's no way it couldn't have. I mean, it's, it's concocted to do that. And there's two ways to handle that. Either it's done so that it's you know, grossly offensive. Like think back to like alien versus predator requiem when we kill the kid and you know, some of that crap that went on there, the pregnant women and all that, that only existed just to freak people out. Right. And so we hated it because it was, it was one of was stupid and it was just, it was obviously annoying. This is concocted for the same reasons. It's to give you this sort of eerie, icky feeling, but on the same light, it's done so cheesily that it's funny. And that you're kind of laughing at it because it's all played off of a joke. That's the thing. You know, uh, um, Joey runs in there looking for help from the priest and he goes, oh, demons aren't real. We just make that up to, you know, give evil a form so we can, you know, teach you about it or whatever. And she goes, well, then what the F is that? And points at Pinhead in the door. I mean, that's the point, right? Is it supposed to be played off as a joke and it's supposed to make you uncomfortable? I basically laughed at it when she <laughs> said that. It was like, what is that? It was just kind of like. Oh, and there's Pinhead standing there. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> well, it is. But then the whole the whole bit of it is that she gets the box and tells him she wants the box. You know, if he wants it, she's got to come after him. And she finds herself in that, I don't know, dreamlike state again. And her dad comes out to her. Now, I didn't for one second believe that. I was like, this is a total ruse. Did you fall for it? 
No, not at all. As soon as you know he was asking for the box, it's like, well, yeah, of course we know. Who yeah, it is. why would he want the box? He, this man was dying on a field of battle at the times we've seen him. This is not what he does. I mean, it was totally obvious, but it actually works to her advantage because Pinhead then totally breaks his mo, which it blows my mind to think about. Normally, when he's ready to destroy something, it's like chains come, boom, it's over, right? That's what we've seen. He, like, starts talking all kinds of mad trash to her and pulls out, like, a hook knife that he's going to rip her up with, right? Is he is that supposed mm-hmm. to be because he's, he's going to take some time with her or what? Why doesn't he just dispatch with her? Who is she to him? Well, it's the whole James Bond thing. You gotta have the guy do the monologue to be able to, you know, waste time so this hero can save themselves. Guess so. It's it seems awfully forced there at the end because it gives the Spencer ghost time to show up, and then we get that uh, really bad camera effect. You know, that little swirly that you used to could do in uh, your first artifacts class, <laughs> so where they combine together. Yeah, it's kind of a cheesy scene when they're like ah and their faces are going together like that i mean i don't know it's yeah but then you know they get they get they get combined i mean elliot gets his wish and you know they kind of become more of a you know level-headed being i guess but he's still gonna kill her yeah no and i was like that that was what got me i was like so that accomplished absolutely nothing and i guess that lends more credence to your theory that he wanted back in pinhead because he missed the pain pleasure relationship he had or whatever with him and he didn't really give a crap about this woman i mean that that makes more sense because nothing changed (laughs) she was still in trouble yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it was all about him trying to get back together with Pinhead. He was just using Joey, and yeah, if, you know, they, they get back together, and, you know, also now he's going to go, and he's gonna they're going to kill Joey, and then, nope, she stabs yeah, well, him. She gets the box. She turns it into the lament configuration, which it, we've said that a lot. That's when the thing becomes from being a box into, like, two triangles on top of a box. So it looks like Leviathan from the other realm. And she jams it halfway through him. I did think that was pretty effective. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, I mean you're going you're gonna to send him back to hell at some point. We know you're not going to kill him because that's already been done. We're not going to do that again. So if you got to send Freddy back to hell or Pinhead back to hell, rather, this is, this is as good a way as any. I suppose. I mean, it's predictable. I mean, we knew you knew it was going to well, happen. Yeah, they've been setting it up for, for 20 minutes. I mean, you do. But you're just waiting to see if she could figure it out. That was the point. And I don't know. I I liked the idea though, but I'm gonna tell you, she does something at the end that like I immediately had thoughts of Leprechaun back to the hood, which is never a good thing. Uh, when you bury the evil in concrete, that doesn't work out well for anyone. <laughs> and I, I will give this film credit for one thing: the last shot of the building with its architecture, all like the puzzle box. I thought was really cool. I said that that is that's creative. I wouldn't have thought about that but the fact that she buried it there that box still has some kind of power yeah i like the ending where it was like it's kind of like you're never going to defeat this that no matter what it's still going to be able to find a way to be able to you know summon these beings again or be able to find you know the next appropriate person to summon them and I thought it was kind of cool when she buries it, and then also the building has, you know, all the the marks, you know, that are on the the configuration, and yeah, I mean, it kind of sets it up as kind of like, you know, oh my god, what's next? Is this building just one? I mean, that's what I kind of got, where it's like, 
well, what's going to go on? You know, people are going to go inside this building and, like, maybe some doors in here actually just lead to hell. There's no puzzle box now that you're actually inside the puzzle box. I mean, it's like they could have went a lot of different ways with that type of setup, but I guess we'll discuss that with part four where they go with that, if they even touch that. Indeed, indeed. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours, Nick, for Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth? As a movie itself, you know, just as like a standalone movie, I mean, it's not very good. I mean, it's okay. I mean, I got to judge it like this because we got a lot of movies coming up, and this is there's only one <laughs> more theatrical release, if you, if you can even call that, in this series, and I have a feeling there's got to be a reason for that. So I don't want to be going, you know, small popcorn, small popcorn, small car popcorn the whole time. <laughs> I got got to kind of level this out a little bit here, so there's a little bit of wiggling room, you know, with the next movies. Um, I'm gonna go medium popcorn. Uh, really, nothing special about it. I mean, it's there, it's adequate. I mean, there's nothing terrible about this movie, but then there's nothing really good about this movie either. I mean, it's just kind of it's kind of just there. It's almost kind of like just like Pinhead in this movie. It's just it's just there. He's there. I mean, it does its thing. I mean. It, doesn't do anything as cool as what it did in the first two, but I don't think it's gonna. This isn't as bad as where we're gonna go in the future. So I'm just gonna give it a medium popcorn. Well, I, I don't know what the future holds. I'll, I've never seen anything past this, but I want to say this: I have a weird relationship with this film. I, I've teased this story. I'm going to tell it now. Back several years ago, I was working uh, doing some audio editing for another podcast, and it was a edit job that was a film that was coming out the same weekend so it was a quick turnaround and I got the audio files at about I don't know 11 o'clock at night and I'm going to stay up all night working on this thing and I flip on HBO in the background and I just turn the sound off just so I have a picture somewhere because I'm sitting in my living room my computer working on this stuff and just so I can have some pictures to look up at every now and then and Hellraiser 3 is coming on and I'm like yeah you know what I've never seen it I'll go ahead and watch this so I, I had that on and I'm sitting there and I'm working on this podcast right and I find myself getting kind of freaked out because with one eye with my eyes I'm watching the uh, the screen and with my ears I'm hearing you know, this, this other audio that I'm working on and I get so wrapped up in it that I, you know, I kept putting myself behind working on it. Well, as it turned out at the time, I had HBO East Coast and West Coast. So I flipped it over to the West Coast and I watched it again while I finished that edit job. So for me, this thing is always tied to that memory. And I never forget when I went to sleep the next morning, I had the weirdest dreams <laughs> you can imagine. And it's all about this film and the club and everything. This is not as good as the first two chapters. Not even close. But as a standalone, if we're going to do a pinhead film, I got to tell you, I don't I don't know that they could have done it too much better. I had a good time with this one. This is guilty pleasure written all over it. I'm going to give it a medium popcorn, and it's borderline. I mean, it could be a large if it was just a little tighter in a couple places. But I like this one a lot. I had a big time with it. And I'm curious because it, it the setting up of the building gives me hope for what part four is going to be. I don't know. I've never seen it. So it'll be a fun discussion to have next time. But I really, really think they they have figured out what to do here now. And I'm curious to where they go with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll see where it goes. I mean, all we know about part four right now is 
it was the death of the theatrical franchise. So, <laughs> well, but also I will I'll say this going into it again, not knowing anything about it. It may indeed be the last one that got theatrically released, but it was made in 1996. Horror was in a real ghetto in 1996, and so we'll we'll pick up more of that discussion next time around, and we'll see if that one was was worthy, if there's anything to build off of when we get back to it. Folks, thanks for joining us in this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Catch up with us on our Facebook page and Twitter accounts there as well, and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Till next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. Now you must come with us. Taste our treasures. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.